2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we desire that we would escape the corruption in the world by, brought about by lust. We desire to be free of our lusts for sin, our desires for sin, our fascination with this world. We desire to be free of our love of fleshly things. We desire more and more to embrace the things of God. And so teach us this morning through this passage how to do uh, how to, 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 to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we have finished 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 5, and now we're in ch- uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a wonderful blessing to be able to proceed from First uh, Peter to Second Peter. So we're in chapter one this week. We know who is writing. We know who is speaking to these people. He's writing to uh, to remind ourselves. He's writing to a people uh, in in south uh, and southwest portion of modern day Turkey. He's writing to them because they feel themselves to be and they are displaced, as it were, in 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 the worldly kingdom, in the kingdom of the world. Uh, they are believers. They feel that they are on the outskirts, the outreach, uh, the farthest portions, seemingly, uh, of the kingdom of God here on earth. And uh, the church is located in Antioch, pr- primarily than Jerusalem. Uh, the centers of Christianity are there. There are local churches throughout various regions, all the way into into e- Western uh, Asia, as it were, and even into uh, as we see uh, Acts come to a close, it's it's even in, in Europe, uh, the gospel is, in the church. But the truth of the matter is that they are, are in the outskirts, and they feel themselves often distant, and, uh, and distant from the church, the center of where the apostolic preaching and teaching ministry is. And so Peter writes to them, and, and frankly, he's going to identify with them, but he writes to them, labeling them as what he understands them to be. Elect exiles, strangers, and aliens. That's who he's writing to. Uh, they feel themselves very much ostracized uh, in the world. Uh, and, and certainly as believers here in a deeply pagan New England, perhaps we even feel that way ourselves. So he writes to these people, but he knows that they are elect of God, saved by grace, called out of this world according to God's 
will. And uh, though aliens, though strangers to the world, nonetheless, he identifies himself as Simon Peter, a bond servant, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Even in the greeting, there is kindness, there is gentleness, there is a self-identification that Peter takes up with these people, saying, you are of the same faith as we ourselves are. There's a, a humble acknowledgement of a, a brotherhood. In fact, he will call them brothers later on, brethren. He, he refers to himself as a bond slave, first and foremost. Uh, and, and, and he's writing, most likely, through the, the amanuensis uh, abilities of, of Jude. Uh, we are told that the, the Greek of Jude is very similar to Second Peter, different than First Peter. Some question the authenticity of uh, whether or not Peter has written this second epistle. But the fact of the matter is that much of the language is very petrine, as it were. And, and the truth is, even if it is... Uh, the writing of Jude, it's the dictation of Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. There's no question that Peter has authored this, this portion of Scripture. He writes to this audience, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, to fellow believers. Now, he is an apostle. He's someone who could say, I want you to listen to me because I'm an apostle. Recently, I saw a scene in a movie where someone threw a drink in someone's face and said, you respect me. It's an interesting thing to demand respect. They will only give you respect if you do it that way through fear. If, if you're going to berate someone for respect, then they're only going to give it to you if they're put into a position of fearing you because of your power and strength. But if you want people to respect you, then act in a respectful way. It's that simple. You can't simply demand it. And so Peter is writing and he's saying, look, I am an, an, an apostle. But his first identification is to say, I am a bondservant. The word is slave. It's doulos. Peter says, I am a slave and secondarily an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he, he mentions apostle simply because he wants his readers to understand that, that he writes under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm a slave, and he calls them brethren, and he says, you've got the same faith I have, because he wants them to know that he is their brother in the faith and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though he speaks with a certain measure of authority, he also speaks as one of them. He puts himself on the same plane as them. He wants them to know that pastors, preachers, apostles even, are not in an elevated state such that they can abuse or take advantage. He identifies himself as Simon Peter, and, and actually in the Greek it's Simeon Peter. It's an interesting designation. Uh, it's just simply his own self-designation as himself. And and there are many other passages throughout Scripture. There are, I think, nine other individuals in the New Testament referred to as Simon. But Simon is Simon Peter. And, and we hear the, that name first in the Gospels when Jesus meets this man, this impetuous man who jumps into the water 
who immediately comes to the conclusion that this Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah of God. Well, he compares and equates his own experience of grace with these New Testament believers, these these believers living in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, the ancient world of what we know to be modern-day Turkey. Peter also writes with, I think, another designation regarding himself, and that is, I think, found in verses 12 through 15. He writes, he says, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Or pardon me, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. That's a... Uh, He says, uh, yes, uh, I'm missing my spot. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter knows he's approaching the end of his life. He knows it. Uh, The the timing of this passage of, of the second epistle of Peter is perhaps when Peter is Roughly 60 years old, give or take. Uh, he's reaching a later portion in, in his life. It's, uh, he's older. He's been told by Jesus that one day he will be lifted up in the similar way to in which he was. We know that Peter will die soon by, by way of a timeline, a historical understanding of when Peter likely died. Uh, Peter is near death. And Peter writes to these people with the intention that he would impart to them an important bit of counsel. What he considers to be the most important thing for them to hear as he approaches the end of life and of ministry. If there's anything more that he should ever share with them, this is it. And so that really, I think, impresses upon us the importance of this little book of three chapters. There are three things that come to us in these four short verses. And I'm going, to, I'm going to approach this passage and, and, and break it down into a, an outline, as it were, with questions and with a, a corresponding answer. So the first question that confronts us in this passage that we might ask ourselves as we read these four verses, why did God graciously work faith in my heart? Why did God graciously work faith in my heart? And Peter will answer that question with this answer. In order to give you eternal life, and to enable you to share in his holiness. So that's the question, why did God graciously work faith in my heart? The answer is in order to give you eternal life and enable you to share in his holiness. Normally what we hear from pulpits in our land and from preaching is, what you need to do if you hear the call of God this morning, you need to open your heart, and receive Jesus into your heart. I'd like to know what that means. I really don't understand what that means. And I think it falls far short of what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that we we become aware of the things which God's Word reveals to be true about Jesus Christ. That He is an advocate. That He is the Messiah. That He is the Son of God. That He died. That He lives. And He did so in order to... Bring about our justification. And what we are obliged to do is to repent and believe. And inviting Jesus into our heart is not repenting of our sins and believing consciously, carefully, soberly in what the Bible says about Christ and about the state of man, uh, man's soul. 
Peter says something about faith this morning. It's a faith that is received. Did you catch that? What Peter says here to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter doesn't say to those who have simply opened their heart and invited Jesus in. He doesn't say to those who who have worked up and plucked up the courage to believe certain things and to give an intellectual assent to what they have come to understand about Jesus. No, he says, to those who have received a faith, it says something vital, I think, about faith this morning, and that is that it is received. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, it was a gift given to you by God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Faith itself is a gift. You could never have believed, would God not to have worked upon your heart graciously, redeeming, converting, saving. It is received. And the word in the Greek is to obtain something by the casting of lots. And lots were understood to be a a direct intervention of God in decision-making and will-revealing. Lots were given by God to Old Testament Israel for the sake of casting, frankly, things that we don't even know what they looked like. And thank God we don't, because we'd, we'd remake them, wouldn't we? We'd remake a replica and we'd make use of them and we'd say, look, and there would be people all over the land who would hold themselves up as, Christian conduits of God's will. They'd cast those lots, but that was given to Israel at a specific time when God dealt uh, with them immediately in, in, in theocracy, directly ruling over them, and with his intent to speak through his mouthpieces, his prophets, kings. And there was a casting of the lots. And of course, we know what the word says. The casting of the dice is in the hands of and according to the will of God. Yeah, it's true. Every time you play Yahtzee with your family at home, and you get double sixes, give thanks to God because he's the one who did it. And you give thanks to God in the same way when you get double threes, or double ones, or you don't get any doubles at all. Casting of the dice is in the hands of the Lord, as are every human being. The faith that you have received is from God, and it was according to God's will and not your own. In fact, God had to redeem your will in order to make you willing. We become willing after first we are redeemed and converted according to that secret sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Faith does not originate in man, but the will of God is where faith begins. It is where it's granted. It's where it's given according to the will of God. Faith is a gift of God. And so what is that faith? Well, it's it's a simple trust in Jesus Christ. It's, it's to say, I, I'm trusting for my future, not just my eternal future, but the moments that are two seconds away from now. And every moment that's coming this year, and next year, and every other year that God gives me, and beyond that, into infinity, I'm trusting God, I'm trusting Jesus Christ with that future. And the reason why I'm trusting Christ with that future is because of what I know about Christ. Because of what the Bible reveals about him. I trust in Jesus Christ 
in the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. The faith, the trust that have been committed to him, that's what I do. I give it all to him. I give him my faith. I give him my trust. I believe in him. I believe in what he has done. And I commit myself, my loved ones, my resources, my life, my moments, my future, my adoration, my delight, my worship to him. So it's simple trust in Jesus Christ. And Peter writes to these people, and he writes to men and women like you and myself, uh, sinners who have been saved by grace, sinners who are in need of reconciliation to God, sinners who have committed sins against God that cannot, that we cannot make up for, that we cannot in any way be reconciled to God unless Christ is our mediator. And so this morning, here is an invitation to you. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, here here it is. Faith is a gift of God. He is willing to give it to you. He is altogether willing to give you the gift of faith and to call you into his marvelous grace. All you have to do is simply trust. And trust yourself to him. Stop living according to your own intentions to somehow work out your salvation according to your own merit. To somehow merit righteousness. To somehow one day deserve to stand before God because you're good enough. Well, you'll never be. Here is that free offer of grace that God will give you faith. Even those who who come and say, you know, I'm convinced of certain things. I, I believe the testimony of Scripture. I'm having a hard time believing Hear the, hear the voice of that man who cried out, Lord, I, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. May that cry be ours, Lord. I, 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 won't, I, can't, I can't argue the, the solidity of my faith. I can't state that my faith is strong enough to ascend to heaven. No, it cannot. I cannot. But, but if you give me faith, I will believe. And if you're gracious to me and you hold me according to your power, I'll continue in that faith to the end of my days. If you'll help me. Because I don't have the strength to do it. And life, life has a way of wearing on my, on my, 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 my belief and trust. And I, I'm prone to distrust. And, and I'm prone to, to even leave you, Lord, even though I love you. But if you'll be gracious to me and preserve my soul, oh, Lord God, I will believe to the end. I will believe you now. I will commit my life and all that I am to you. And that's what it is. That's what you must do. That's what each of us must do. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of faith, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to to know that you and I believe in Christ today? And the faith that we've received, the gift that we have received, is the same gift that the Apostle Paul And Peter and James and John received too. This is the continuing apostolic church. That's what this is. The confessing, Bible-believing church. That's where we are. That's what we should always look for. A church that confesses the truth of God's Word, believes the Word, preaches the Word, teaches the Word, sings the Word, 
sees the word, hears the word, reads the word. In other words, a church that's about the Bible. Because anything else is really rather worthless, isn't it? It's the same kind of faith that Peter and all the apostles have. It's universal. None can be saved without believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Believing the word and its testimony of Christ. All who have it will be saved. All who refuse it will be damned. According to God's righteous judgment. The Apostle Paul has used a similar statement before, or or a similar statement to Peter in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A believer simply trusts in Christ to save her or him, And the righteousness of Christ flows down to them, through them, into them. We receive the imputation of his righteousness. We walk in his righteousness. We marvel at his righteousness. We experience his righteousness. We embrace his righteousness. Because without his righteousness, we would not be righteous. We cannot be righteous. But as we ask that question, as we answer that question, why did God graciously work faith in my heart? Well, it's to give you eternal life and to share in his holiness. Maybe some of us this morning struggle with holiness and walking in a godly way. And there are countless ways in which the world can tempt us to drugs and alcohol and to sex and to 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 the expectations that others would notice ourselves and we would walk pridefully amongst them, be recognized as a, a great person, a big person, a learned person, an articulate individual, someone who others would respect easily without having to shout for it. Well, we are tempted by new and shiny things. We are tempted by an increase of resources. We are tempted by money. We are tempted by all manner of things that delight our flesh and please our eyes. How can we possibly attain to godliness? Well, Peter says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing this, or seeing that, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, we'll, we'll talk in a moment about divine power, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. Yes, God saved you for the purpose of giving you eternal life and graciously giving to you everything that pertains to a life of godliness. God wants you, God has saved you so that you would walk in a way that is Christ-like. Again, we get back to that modern preaching that comes from a lot of pulpits. Jesus, uh, this morning, is calling you, and he is saying, will you invite me into your heart? You need to open your heart and invite Christ into your life. No. The Word of God is saying, and the, the commands of God are, you must repent of your sin, 
You must believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And then my divine power will be at work in you, granting eternal life and holiness. Now, it's right there where you see a lot of believers depart from the church. We, we, we like the idea of Christ. We want to be saved from our sins. We're ready to acknowledge, yes, I've sinned against God. That's an easy thing to do. We love fellowship. It's always good to get together and eat food together. We love meals, fellowship meals. It's wonderful to pray together, to be encouraged with each other, to visit people in the hospital, even to give money to the support of local churches and ministries. I'll do all of that, but don't tell me I have to be godly. That's a departure point for many. Well, yes, the Bible says that we are to walk in holiness. And if we don't, we will not see the Lord. Look at Hebrews. The call is upon every believer to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to walk carefully, to make certain that we have faith in Christ, that it's genuine, that we are not hypocritical, that we are not charlatans, wolves in sheep's clothing, that we are not lying to the Lord and to ourselves and to each other, but that we are genuinely Christians, that we have genuinely trusted Christ Jesus as our Savior, that we are walking in that newness of life that is inevitably flowing from that life that has been originated in our hearts by the grace of God. In other words, God renews regenerates, converts, we believe as our first response to God's saving power and work. And then, little by little, we grow in the knowledge of God and lead a life that is contrary to, different from the work or the life that we lived before. The old man has passed away. The new has come. We don't walk according to the old letter of the law, but according to the newness of grace. And of Christ. If you've experienced genuine salvation, if you've truly been converted, if you're justified by grace through faith, that will inevitably show itself in changed conduct, in genuine mortification of sin, putting to death old patterns of sin, increasingly so. Again, only because of the power of God, not because of anything within ourselves. And also doing things which are pleasing to him. Living a life that is right in lockstep with what he has commanded. His precious and very great promises have granted to us all things, everything pertaining to life and godliness. So the language he uses as he talks about eternal life is that it is our current possession If you're a believer, you have eternal life. It's not something you're waiting for at a later point. It's yours. You have eternal life. It's been promised to you. We possess this even now. But his very precious and very great promises, or in my New American Standard Version, his precious and magnificent promises, all contemplated in their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is all intended to bring about the goal of the gospel, which is our personal transformation. God wants to save us from our sins, reconcile us to himself, and conform us, transform us 
into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. To see Christ's stamp placed upon us. Eve's sin, you think about this for a second. Eve's sin was to listen to Satan who told her, you can be like God. God is hiding this from you. But you, if you partake of this forbidden fruit, God's hiding from you the fact that if you partake of it, you'll be like him. And of course, he was lying. But there's always a half truth to lies, isn't there? The truth is that we can be like God. The stamp of divinity can be stamped upon us. How is that? Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's intention is to save you from your sins, reconcile you to himself, but also to stamp upon you the image of Christ to make you like him. To transform you from your fallen condition into your redeemed state in Christ Jesus. Eve's sin was listening to Satan's promise to go about it through a different way. Take, eat. God says, look at Christ, believe and trust, and I'll make you like my son. It's been mankind's problem since the beginning, isn't it? We want to be like God. We want to be like God, though, in our way. I want to be a God like a God of my own imagination. I don't want to be like the biblical God. And even if I did, I can get there myself. The Tower of Babel, what was that? Mankind saying, I can get high enough to be like God, to to be in the dwelling of God. Well, (laughs) I don't care if they raised the, the largest, the highest building or spire that's over in Abu Dhabi. If you go out into space and you step out just a few miles, those buildings don't look so big. In fact, you can't even see them. Mankind can exalt himself, lift himself up as high as he wishes to go. The truth is we are not God. We cannot be God. We cannot ever participate in in the essence that makes God who he is. He is unique and extraordinary, a spiritual being who is infinite in all of his attributes. And yet God invites us into this marvelous relationship and fellowship in Jesus Christ and says, believe in him. I'll reconcile you to myself. I'll pardon your sins. I'll call you sons and daughters of the living God. You'll become my children. I'll adopt you into the family and I'll stamp Christ's image upon you such that you share, you share in the image of Christ. You share in his holiness. Secondly, the second question here in this passage, and this is faster, briefer than the others. uh, How can you possibly share in the holiness of God? How can I possibly share in his holiness? How will I get there? How in the world will I ever be able to attain to the holiness of God. Well, the answer that Peter provides is through his divine power. He doesn't say through divine merit. I mean, through, through yes, through divine merit, pardon me. Not through human merit. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say through human ability somehow to ascend to God, but rather he, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
Maybe you're struggling this morning with certain besetting sins and you're saying, I find my ability to, 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 to step above my sins and no longer be tempted by them is, is impossible. Maybe you're beset by various lusts of various kinds and you're saying, this is always with me. It never goes away. Even the most surprising thing can trigger an intention or a desire for sin. There's encouragement here, isn't there? That God's, at the end of the day, no matter how hard it may be, God's divine power has been granted to you to help and to enable you to live a holy and godly life. To step away from the things that have ruined us. To break the power of sin that has reigned over us for through all of our years of unbelief. His divine power. Whose divine power? Well, Peter, Peter states that in verse 1. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in some of our translations, it may differentiate of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the sense that uh, they, 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 they're committed or they construct the sentence to somehow mean that God is in view and Christ separately, the second person of the Trinity, is in view separately. No, I don't think that's what Peter's doing. What Peter is saying is he is the God and Savior. He is Jesus Christ. He's saying something important about Jesus. Peter's expressing what, Peter, what Thomas said when he put his hands in Jesus' hands, in, in the holes on his hands from the cross. And he said, my Lord and my God. It was the conviction of Peter himself that the Lord Jesus Christ is the very God of gods. He is the one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells and lives in bodily form as Paul Outlines in Colossians 2.9. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. God and Savior. He, because He is, He is able to save us from our sins. We are to set us free, to make us righteous in Himself, to reconcile us to God. Seeing that, seeing that, as it says in verse 3, seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything. God took the initiative. God has done an extraordinary thing. His divine power, the potency of the Godhead, and all God's attributes, words, wisdom, and power, Peter attributes all of it, and he says he takes it all, he, he, he takes it all into view, and he says all of that is engaged in Christ Jesus, who is God, and he is using it, to give you everything that you need to live in a holy and godly way. It's an extraordinary statement. God has given every Christian everything that we need. A kind of a state, statement takes me aback. I feel myself deficient in so many ways. I, 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 I woke up last night and, and I confessed to Christine that I had had a dream that really disturbed my thoughts and I... I prayed about it, and to be honest, uh, having just woken, I, I was I was disturbed by by my own f- feeling or lack of feeling in prayer. As as I prayed, I I, I I was confessing to the Lord and asking His forgiveness because I felt like my prayer was 
distracted. Of course, I was half asleep, but but which is true. But I felt that God was so far from me, and it was just my feelings. It was how I felt internally, and sometimes we feel that way, don't we? Sometimes we feel as if, as the Puritans would say, the heavens are like brass. That God is far from our problem, that he cannot hear, that he is unfeeling. And yet this extraordinary statement tells me that, yes, even though the deficiency is in me, yes, I feel it, I acknowledge that reality, that I am deficient, that I am not sufficient to live every day to the glory of God or in a godly and holy way. That power is not in me, but that God has granted divine power to me through Jesus Christ, such that everything that I need, everything that I need. At one point, there was an issue of sin in the church the session had to speak to. And I went to this passage. I went to this passage and said, look, There's no excuse for an ongoing pattern of sin. There's no excuse for unchecked sin in the life of a believer that isn't fought against, labored against, uh, prayed over, uh, resisted. Because of this very passage, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. If you want to be free of sin... If you, if, if you genuinely and truly want to see sin and its reign broken, then go to God and beg of Him and find that He will give you divine power to be free from that reigning sin. There are some examples even in this church. I think all of us could in some way say that there are certain sins that we have experienced wonderful deliverance from. One day we just simply stopped looking. We stopped going where we shouldn't have gone. We stopped looking at what we shouldn't look at. We stopped drinking or consuming or eating what we shouldn't have been drinking, consuming or eating. Because God's divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There are the rest of us who are left still struggling and fighting against sin, but each day still even though the ongoing battle against sin is real, nevertheless, God's divine power is engaged and can grant you anything relating to everything in the Christian life. If you seek it, if you cry out, if you long for it, if you ask of God, His divine power is at your disposal if you're a child of God. It will be at work in you doing that which is pleasing to God if you are dependent upon him. It's extraordinary that God took the initiative to save us. God did take the initiative to save us. None of us would have come to God. We would have never believed in this offer of grace. We would never have been conduits of this divine power or receivers of this divine power unless God in his own initiative had reached out and called us into faith through grace and peace, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. 
John Calvin says, Peter makes God the author of this knowledge of grace and of the gospel because we never go to him except when we are called. It's like that dog out, the family dog out on the street that's walked out the door. And they start running wild all over the neighborhood. And they're running everywhere. Well, my neighbor has a dog like that. My neighbor has a dog like that who barks incessantly. But nonetheless, when that dog gets loose, and it has at least a couple of times, there are new neighbors on our street. The neighbor simply gets out in her car. She drives down the street, calls out whatever the dog's name is. Coco, Coco, come and have a ride. And the dog loves to go for car rides. Dog immediately comes to the car. The dog will not come unless called. I'm not saying that Christians are dogs, but I am saying most certainly that we we don't come unless we are called by our master, our savior, our God, our Lord. Peter wants to show us the goodness of God verse 3b, he says this, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Who called us by his own glory and excellence. He called us. He called us by his own glory and excellence. His goodness is supremely observed in his mercy to sinners. So often we experience some good circumstance and we say, God is good. And that's a good thing to do. I don't want to say that it's wrong. But the goodness of God is supremely, eminently, perfectly seen in the salvation of sinners. Even better than when your recipe turned out really well. It's even bigger than when you get a a bonus in your paycheck. It's even better and bigger than when you get a good report on your health from your doctor. God is supremely good. And he is so supremely good that he has saved sinners by grace through faith. We shouldn't look for his goodness in all of our circumstances primarily, but but we should look for his mercy and grace. Thirdly and finally, what will God powerfully use as a means to cause me to increase in holiness? How will God bring this about? What what means will he use to do this? Well, the answer is, as provided by Peter, is the knowledge of God in his word. If you want to be godly and holy, how do you go about doing it? Well, depend upon the power of God that grants you everything, according to that divine power, necessary and good for the believer living in the world. But... What is the means by which God normally will give that to you? Well, the Bible. Read the Bible. We underestimate underestimate the significance of reading the Bible. In verse 2, Peter has said this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How are we brought to a knowledge of God and of Jesus the Lord? We hear about it. We read about it. Someone told us about it. But what did they tell us about the Bible? What did they share with us when they shared evangelism with us? The Bible. What the Bible says, hopefully. When we came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, how do we know about Christ? Well, how do we hear about Christ's virgin birth? When do we 
hear about the ascension of Christ, the death of Christ, the cross of Christ. Well, in the Bible, read about it in the Bible. Knowledge is not just an encounter with facts. It's not just an encounter, an encounter or an ascent to facts. The knowledge of God leads to fellowship. The knowledge of God leads to worship. The knowledge of God leads to service. The knowledge of God leads to obedience. The knowledge of God is where the Christian experience is God. We read something about God and all of a sudden we understand God. What God has intended to teach us from that portion of the word. And so when we hear about God, when we read about God, we experience God and we come to understand and to know of God what can be known, what he is determined to make known of himself. And God's truth changes us internally. You can't simply read the Bible, have faith in your heart, and not be changed. If there's faith in your heart and you read the Bible, you'll be changed. So Peter says, grow in the knowledge of God and grace and peace will increase as a result. That's what he's saying. If you grow in the knowledge of God, you're reading about God's word and you're learning about God's word. You're praying over God's word. You're meditating over God's word day and night. What's going to happen? Well, grace and peace in my life will increase. And if I don't read my Bible and if I'm neglecting the word of God and I'm not interested in it, like I am interested in the latest television show of my favorite series then I'll find a, there's a strange dearth, a lack of grace and peace in my life. Why? Are we neglecting the word? That's the first question. So there is a purpose here that Peter is revealing, and his purpose in this passage, in this entire epistle, is to promote the knowledge of God. He will say it multiple times, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He's going to say it again and again in various ways. Go to the Word. Go to the Word. Remember the Word. Deepen in the Word. Increase in the knowledge of the Word of God. Relationship with God is formed through knowledge. If you're not reading the Scriptures consistently, you're going to discover a lack of grace and peace, a deficiency in your relationship with the Lord. So read the scriptures and discover anew his birth, his death, the messianic promises of of the Psalms and the Old Testament scriptures. Listen anew to his ministry, his words, his miracles, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Renew yourselves in the promises of his coming again. Listen anew to the word of God when it encourages us with with Christ's words that he is our head, our brother, our intercessor, our ruler, our king. And then pray in faith and trust that the divine power of God is at work in you doing that which is pleasing in his sight. When we read, we know. When we know, we are in relationship. And that relationship with God will grow and deepen graciously as we read and learn. May God help you and me to increase in the knowledge of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that encourages us to read. Help us to do very practical things by by taking up the Bible and committing to read a chapter or two chapters every day.
of not being willing to go to sleep until we've read the Bible and not being willing to get up in the morning and go to work and deal with people and take on all the burden of anxiety and fear and trouble without first having our hearts stilled, calmed by the Word of God. Help us not to do that in the most convenient way to ourselves, but rather in a slightly inconvenient way so that we demonstrate that we really value this, that we really love you, Lord, and that we love your word. Help us to do it in such a way that we would show ourselves and preach to our own soul that we need to make the word of God our central focus. Forgive us, Lord, for our neglect of your word. Help us to love and delight ourselves in it and to, to know and trust that as we read, we will increase in relationship with you and in, in grace and peace in our experience of the blessings that your word promises. That we will increase in understanding because your, li- your word is a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. By it, we may know how we ought to live. We thank you, Lord, for not leaving us in the dark in this world, but giving us the word, which is a broad spotlight that unveils every dark place and shows us the way. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.